Exciting days. Exciting times that we live in. Oftentimes confusing for us. They need not be confusing because we have the Word of God. This is an exciting morning as we begin our study of a new book. Uh, so I'll ask you to take your Bibles, open them with me to Second Peter, the book of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, as I intended to try to say or say last Lord's Day, we are embarking on a journey that has as its intent the strengthening of our faith so that you and I as Christians would finish well. The finishing well in our faith. So many today, sadly, and even recent times of the last several months and even recent years, so many who have been stalwarts, or at least those who we thought were stalwarts in the faith, have either abandoned the faith altogether, known authors and others who have proclaimed to know Jesus Christ by faith, who are now saying, I'm not a Christian I don't follow Jesus anymore. They have fallen from the faith. They have not finished at all, let alone finish well. And we are starting a book that is going to strengthen us in order to do that. My intent this morning, as we begin 1 Peter, is to simply introduce us to this great epistle, and quite possibly then look at just verses 1 and 2 as we begin. I reminded us last Lord's Day that we are living in a time when truth seems to be very difficult to come by. Uh, I don't think that's a surprise to any of us who are here this morning, any of us who intelligently look at what's going on around us in the country and in the world, we have never had more information coming at us through all of the various means that we have access to than the time in which we live. We are in information overload. And yet much of what we hear is filled with false narratives, filled with false ideas, and even filled with lies, outright lies. And as true as we find that to be in the world around us, and really in some senses as Christians, we're not surprised to hear of those things happening in the world. The world is under the power of the evil one, the father of lies. So it's not true. It's not hard to understand that false narratives and false ideas and even outright lies come in the world. But sadly, sadly and shockingly in many ways, there are false narratives and false ideas and even lies that have been infiltrating the church throughout the centuries. Just to give you an example of this, two weeks ago I received an email from a person that I do not know, and it was entitled this, A Nation in Crisis. Nation in Crisis. I thought, ooh, this might be interesting to read. This is how... The email read, it said this, I'm sending this note out to pastors and leaders of Bible churches who hold the Bible up as authoritative in all matters, especially the gospel. Thought, wow, that's, that's great. In 1984, noted evangelical philosopher Francis Schaeffer looked at America and he was alarmed at what he saw. It was rapidly departing from its long-held, biblically-based belief system. Citing the atheist Madeleine Murray O'Hare, 1963 Supreme Court victory eliminating prayer in public schools, the 1967 Summer of Love, which officially embraced free love, rebellion against parents, drug use, and Eastern mysticism, the 1973 Roe v. Wade ruling codifying the murder of unborn children as a constitutional right to the endorsement of all kinds of aberrant sexual behavior and all that it entails. The title of Schaefer's book was The Great Evangelical Disaster, wherein he declared the church to be failing in its responsibility and calling 
to be salt and light to the world and to press back against the darkness. The book was an attempt at a wake-up call to the church before it was too late. The writer of this email went on to say, now some 30 years later, 35 years later, few would argue that the church has utterly failed at any real influence on society. In fact, the strongest case can be made for the exact opposite. What happened, he asks. What happened is in the last few decades, the gospel itself has been watered down. It has been compromised and distorted beyond recognition. When people are taught that as Christians, they remain as unrighteous sinners, how can one ever point out sin without being labeled a hypocrite? When grace is a guaranteed free pass to heaven, why should the so-called believer ever choose to endure persecution and affliction? Why not just embrace compromise so as not to be labeled divisive if it really doesn't matter in the end anyway? It is a gospel which fails to teach the pursuit of holiness as necessary for salvation. Or if it does, it often does so by law. All of that sounds good for the most part until you read just that last line that I just read. That it's a gospel which fails to teach the pursuit of holiness as necessary for salvation. And he goes on to say, the accompanying YouTube channel and podcast, obviously that he does, will explain and shed new light on a broadly accepted and very flawed theological model. Okay, what model is that? You who have written to pastors and people who lead Bible-believing churches across the globe. He says, we're not talking about Joe Osteen or Benny Hinn. Those wolves should have been obvious to every true disciple. So, for example, if you teach that justification is a one-time event whereby a person is declared righteous, guaranteeing ultimate salvation in a moment, we will prove that to be incorrect from Scripture. Number two. If you teach that as a true believer, you remain an unrighteous sinner, that too is provably false. Number three, if you teach that as Christians, there is nothing that we will ever do or fail to do which will in any way change the way we are viewed by God because He only looks upon the imputed righteousness of Christ bestowed upon us, then I have to say, you are leading people into serious error. And in the end, he says, let me be clear. Apparently, he's been confusing up to that point. Let me be clear. This is not about promoting a social justice agenda in the church. It is about the accurate gospel. If the Bible truly is your sole authority, we challenge you in the most respectful but urgent manner to examine and refute what we have presented here. Nation in crisis. Man in crisis. That writer of that email has a massive problem. A massive problem. It's obvious that this person is gravely wrong in his understanding of the crucial doctrines that he mentions, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of imputation, the doctrine of what it means to be sanctified and how we are sanctified. He has an obvious misunderstanding and misinterpretation of whatever scripture he's using to try to do that. All he needs to do is listen to the 119 messages we gave out of the book of Romans. And he'll clearly get some understanding as to what justification means and what imputation means and what sanctification looks like. 
But my point in bringing it up is that his words sound so good. In the beginning, you're like, yeah, I agree. Yeah, there's a problem. Yeah, the church has a problem. Yes, I agree with what you're saying until you get to your point. He sounds good, at least initially. Sounds as if we're on the same page, and yet in the end, you realize we are way on a different page. In fact, what he claims to be orthodox, I would say, is not orthodox at all. What this person is actually promoting is a false gospel. A gospel that will not save. A gospel that will damn those who follow it to an eternal hell. A gospel that is not born from a true knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a significant need in the world and there is a significant need in the church for the clear truth according to real knowledge. We're not talking about some Gnostic idea, some idea where we have some higher knowledge. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the true experiential knowledge and understanding that comes from only knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's what we're talking about. Therefore, if we're going to walk through life, if we're going to go through life, if we're going to enter into the kingdom of God, then we need actual truth. We need truth from the knowledge of God and not false or misleading information. Listen, we wouldn't know that email was wrong unless we knew the truth. We need teaching that is rooted in the truth according to the real knowledge for our faith to finish well. And beloved, I bring all that up because that's the theme of 2 Peter. That's the theme of 2 Peter. Knowledge. And specifically, the knowledge of God. Just just notice with me how how he begins this in in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted us granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Notice down in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Over to chapter 2 and verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, he's talking about false teachers, people who are following the appetites of their own wisdom, denying the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For after they've escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they have again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse than the first. Peter ends his letter with this same theme, chapter 3 and verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can go through First Peter, you can go through Second Peter, these three chapters, and notice this whole idea of knowing or knowledge or, or, or uh, uh, to know, this principle is introduced over and over and over again. In other words, the intent of this letter is to give us direction. It would be a sad thing if you were new in this area and you didn't know how to get to Fellowship Bible Church and you were in one of the other towns that are nearby and someone gave you directions, but they were bad directions. They weren't specific directions. They were directions, but not according to knowledge. You wouldn't arrive at the direct at the place that you wanted to arrive at because you had faulty directions. All of us have been there with our GPSs. Sometimes the GPS is wrong. It's faulty knowledge. We want good direction. We want direction that will get us to where we are to go. Correct direction so that we arrive at the proper place. 
So this letter then from the Apostle Peter is meant to remind, to remind each and every one of us who are Christians what it truly means to know God. What it truly means to know God. To know God, Jesus said in John 17, 3, is to equal eternal life. This is eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ whom He sent. Jesus was praying that to the Father. This is eternal life. We notice then that this book opens up with this principle. Chapter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you, as I read before, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, we are told that The divine power of God. The divine power of God. The very creative reality that God uses to create all things, His divine power gives us all that we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. True knowledge of God. And so when you're reading through 2 Peter, by the time you get to chapter 2, we are going to understand that there is a guarantee of destruction to anyone who does not follow this knowledge. There's a guarantee of destruction to anyone who does not follow after a true knowledge of God. In fact, look how how Peter sandwiches this peril, this destruction of those who refuse to follow it between the principle of knowing God in chapter 1 and chapter 3. Notice notice how he does this. Go to chapter 1, verse 16. Notice what he says. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father... Such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son in, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Of course, Peter's referring to him and James and John being on the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus was pulling back his flesh, if you will, and his glory was shining forth and God spoke from the cloud. And he says in verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure, which you would do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all. In other words, here's the priority. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. So right there in chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, Peter lays down the foundation as to where the true knowledge of God comes from. As to where true understanding of God comes from. It does not come from the hearts of sinful men, it comes from the Word of God. The Word of God inscripturated for us by the men that the Holy Spirit carried along. And then, and then he says, no, know that the destruction, know that the destruction that comes through the judgment of Jesus Christ is founded on this knowledge. The destruction that comes through Jesus Christ is founded upon the truth, the Scriptures, the Word of God. And this knowledge does not rest upon clever myths. We didn't follow cleverly defies tales, he's saying. We didn't make this stuff up. This knowledge does not rest upon those things. It rests upon the Scriptures. It rests upon what we were given by God through the God the Spirit, through the men who wrote down what God was Say. Then you get to chapter 3, and verse 3, he uses this phrase again know this first of all. 
Right here in verse 20 of chapter 1, know this first of all, and then chapter 3 right at the beginning, know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? Denying the very return of Jesus Christ. And you say, so what is Peter saying? What is he saying? Well, he is contrasting belief in the truth of Jesus Christ's return as it is given to us in the Scriptures with those who claim to have knowledge, but they deny His coming. They claim that they know, they claim that they have the answers, they claim that they have the truth, and yet they deny the coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, the truth of the coming of Jesus Christ is grounded in the commandments and the words of the Old Testament prophets. Notice verse 2 of chapter 3. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. You should know this. The coming of Christ is grounded in the truth given to us by God through the prophets, through the scriptures. But the false information, the false knowledge, is grounded upon the sinful desires of men. Why he says, know this first of all in chapter 3, verse 3, that in the last days mockers will come in their mocking, following their own, what? Lusts. Following their own desires, following their own wisdom, their own knowledge. They're not following after the Word of God. And in the end... And in the end, we hear these words. Chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. You see, sometimes when we talk to our children, or sometimes when we talk to friends who are making decisions, we like to use the phrase, I told you so. I told you so. Maybe, maybe... You warn them of something they're doing. You warn them ahead that if they do it, something's going to happen because you've maybe walked that road before because you you know something. You have some knowledge and you want to say, I told you so, when it does happen to them. Well, Peter is going one step before that. Peter is saying to all of us as Christians, don't ever say I didn't tell you. Don't ever say, I didn't tell you so. You know this beforehand. You know this beforehand. You've been warned. Listen, in your Christian life, you don't have to fall. You don't have to fall prey to that foolishness. You don't have to be taken captive by the foolish ideas of the men around you who think they have knowledge but aren't telling you of the Scriptures. You can be steadfast. You can end well. You'll only do that by growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by understanding and doing what the Scriptures actually say and what they actually teach. You'll get an email like I received two weeks ago and you'll read it and you go, yeah, that sounds good. But if you know, if you have the knowledge of the Scriptures and you understand what the Scriptures say, then when that email comes, as deceptive as it might be, as subtle as it might be, as good-sounding as it might sound on the initial phases, you'll go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Something's wrong here. Something's not right. Something's not true. Why? Because you've been warned beforehand. We have to be careful. We have to be careful because false information can seem so right. People who say it can seem so erudite, so educated. 
can seem like it's so good until you see what it actually is saying. And so I'm sure you now realize just here at the beginning of this, if you didn't know when we started, that there's a great need for this in the church today. There's a great need for what Peter says here in Second Peter in the church today. The church today is struggling. It seems incredibly so it's struggling to give helpful answers to believers, to answer believers' questions so that those believers know God in accordance with truth. For some reason, the evangelical church as a whole seems to struggle with that. Why? Because they've drifted from the truth. They've exchanged, as Paul said in Romans 1 of the pagans, they've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Some are walking according to their own lusts. So I say all that so that we must make no mistake as we begin. We cannot make a mistake as we start the study of this book. The letter fights for what embodies the true knowledge of God. This letter fights for that. It struggles for that. It, Peter is laying down the words, fighting the battle, laying it out beforehand so that we will be equipped. This is the goal of this book. And in a confused world, and even in an evangelical climate where contradictory views about the gospel seem to run rampant, we have a reliable foundation. You're holding in your hands a foundation that keeps you from being tripped up and swept away. You have in your hands the only thing that can do that. one that is founded on the true knowledge of God. One that will establish you in the true knowledge of God. One that will even rebuke you when you are wrong. But one that will rescue you when you have fallen. One that will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like it did with Peter when he stumbled. So let's begin then our study here in verses 1 and 2. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter begins this way, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. If I were to to simply throw out this this morning and ask you to describe the characteristics of a person that you might admire or want to be like, I, I can imagine that many of us might say, well, well, I'd like to be like a person who rarely, if ever, spiritually falls. I'd like to be like a person who who in their spiritual life is always steadfast, continually standing strong, someone who does not have any stumbling. I, I want to be like a person who always says what they mean and they do what they say. I don't ever want to stumble in any of those kinds of ways. I want to be like the person that finishes whatever they set their mind to doing. In fact, we would probably describe someone who doesn't exist. They don't exist. Why? Simply because we all want to be somewhat superhuman. We all want to be Superman, if you will. We all want to be that one who can fly. Why? Because we all fail. 
we all spiritually fail, don't we? I mean, this is really the, the thing that nags on us all the time. The fact that we claim to love Jesus Christ with our mouths and our hearts truly do love Jesus Christ. We know we're saved. We know we're secure in the righteousness of Christ, and yet we find ourselves failing so often in our spiritual lives. We find ourselves falling. We find ourselves unsteadfast. Each and every one of us has faults that we do not want. And that, I believe, is why we admire others who appear to not have those kinds of troubles. We admire those people that don't have the faults we have. And I would say, this is probably why many, if not most of us, admire Simon Peter. In some ways he's like us, but in other ways all the biblical characters seem to be, biblical characters seem to be so unlike us. They seem to be those who, who were like Paul, preaching all the time, these strong stalwarts. Yeah, we know a little bit about their previous life, but, but in the reality, what we read on the pages of Scripture are these spiritual heights that they've seemingly achieved, and we go, I'd like to be like them. Peter was a guy who spoke with big claims about himself. And yet when he fell, he fell hard. One writer described Peter this way, quote, I imagine a broad-shouldered, loud, extroverted, assertive man who is always sweating. I found that funny to read. He was headstrong, unbridled, and who was always getting into trouble and causing his master plenty of the same, unquote. I think that's a good description of Peter. At least the picture I have in my mind when I think about Peter, a guy who's brash, a guy who's outspoken, a guy who has courage that in some ways is unflinching. I think that's why some of us can can identify with Peter in many ways. Peter is so much like us, and yet this is what's so intriguing about him in how he describes himself here at the beginning of this book. Notice, verse 1, Peter says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. It's unique, actually, that Peter would describe himself in that way. Peter uses two names and two titles. Two names, Simon Peter. You read them right there on the page before you. Simon is his transliterated Hebrew name. It's not a Greek name at all. It's a Hebrew name. It was the name that was given to him by his own father at his birth. You can read about Peter's name in John chapter 1, verse 42, I think it is. Peter was not his Hebrew name at all. Peter was purely a Greek name. Name. It was a name that was given to him on that very time when Jesus called him. When Jesus was beginning his ministry and calling the disciples, he gave Peter this name. And of course, we understand the name, what it means. It means rock, Petra. But why is all of that significant here? Why is his Hebrew name and his Greek name brought together? Because this isn't how Peter started his first letter. In fact, just turn back a few pages just to get this in our minds. Peter didn't begin his first letter like that. He just simply said, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter just identifies himself with one name and one title. But when you get to Second Peter, he uses both names and he uses two titles to describe himself. Why? Well, I I think just reading Scripture and thinking through it, I, I think He really wants us to fully know who He is. In other words, uh, the letters that we have in the Scriptures, the, the, the Bible that we have, the pages that we have here, were written with a purpose. 
They were written with intent in them. They're not just words on a page that guys were dictating from God. No, the Holy Spirit carried them along using all of their personalities and all of their being to write exactly the message that God was giving to us concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, and the truth that we have. So there's purpose behind every letter, and this letter's purpose is to encourage us, but it's also to strengthen us not to fall. To remain steadfast in the truth. To grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ by means of the truth. And so Peter is writing to us as one who has been on both sides of the fence. Peter's been on both sides. He's somebody with a track record. Someone who has fallen and yet been restored. He's someone who has failed and yet, someone who found victory. He's a man who you and I can be well acquainted with because Peter knew who he was before and who he is now in Christ. So, right here at the beginning of the book, we have Simon the fisherman, the brash, the bold, the self-driven man, not Simon. And we also have Peter. The fisher of men. The bold, spirit-driven worshiper of Jesus Christ. And so right here at the beginning of the book, there's nothing hidden before us. There's nothing hidden about Peter. This is the before and after person. This is reminding us what we already know. This is Peter telling us what we know to be true concerning the Scriptures, and now we know about Peter that Peter is telling us, listen, I'm the same as you. I I was there too. I've been there too. He describes himself, you notice, as a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Bondservant and apostle. We know what a servant is. Servant is a doulos. That's the word in the original language, doulos. It's, it's the original word for slave, slave in the truest sense of the word. That's a, a word that we can't even almost speak in America today. Slave in the truest sense, someone who is bound to another. That's the idea. Peter was under the sole authority of Jesus Christ. That's how he saw himself. The kind of slavery in the ancient world, the slavery that Peter's talking about, this idea of being bound to another, that was well established in the ancient world. It it wasn't like we hear of it today. The first readers of this letter would have immediately understood exactly what Peter was talking about when he said that. Simon Peter, a bond servant. One commentator described slavery this way. The slave, in his obedience to and respect for his master, would address himself with pleasure to every task given to him, and no task would be too menial and no assignment too difficult. That's the mindset of, uh, of a slave in the ancient world. He he considered his obedience and respect for his master to be at the highest level so that whatever he was asked, no matter what it was, it was his pleasure and his task to do it. It didn't matter how small it was or how great it was. He went on to say, as the slave, he valued the price paid to purchase him. And to the best of his endeavors, he would promptly obey every wish. In respect to his master, he would work to gain approval irrespective of personal cost, unquote. So this is how Peter saw himself with Jesus Christ. Obedience, irrespective of the task or assignment. Obedience, no matter what the personal cost might be. wonder how we think about our own Christian life. We are, like Peter, we are slaves of Jesus Christ. We are servants of 
Christ. We are those who are to think of our Christian life in that way, where our obedience is to be irrespective of the task or the assignment, irrespective of what the personal cost might be. That's not popular in our world today. That's not popular even in the evangelical church today. To take a stand for Jesus Christ, irregardless of what it might cost you, is is seemingly shunned today. We see it going on right now in America, right now with churches. I said last week, there are evangelical leaders throughout the world who are unwilling to take a stand with other evangelical leaders simply because they don't want to fight the cost. Peter says, I'm a bondservant, bondservant of Jesus Christ. And he also says, I'm an apostle. Why? Why would he say that? I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm like you, but he says, and an apostle. Why would he say that? Because the term apostle garners an authority. An authority. It's the authority that comes with a commissioned office. Now, in our anti-authority age in which we live, that seems rather strange that an office would have authority. But yet, beloved, listen, office has authority. Even when we don't care for the words spoken by the person who is occupying the office. Offices have authority. They still have authority. And so Peter is saying to all of us, I'm just like you. I'm a bondservant like you. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, and yet I'm speaking as one with delegated authority. And I'm speaking so that your faith will be steadfast. So Peter is saying to all of us, you must listen. You must listen. You must pay attention. You cannot tune out. You cannot just take it today and leave it tomorrow. It's much more important to that is from a higher authority than that. You cannot say, oh, yeah, Peter, you've fallen in the past, so how do you dare say that to me? Can't do that. Peter says, you're right, I'm just like you. But I'm not telling you my words. I'm telling you God's words. It's the same thing that we say to anybody with the gospel. I'm not telling you that you need to be like me. Thank the Lord that being like me is clear enough that that wouldn't save you at all. What you need to be is in relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't get offended by me because you're already an offense to God. You need to have a relationship with God regardless of how your life measures up to mine. That's what Peter's saying. Listen, you you must listen. He's saying, I'm speaking on behalf of Christ in order to strengthen you as a Christian in your walk of faith. I'm here on an official delegated mission on behalf of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 12. Therefore, I always, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in truth, which is present with you. You see, that's the second argument. Oh, I can tune out. I already know this stuff. Peter says, listen, that argument holds no water with me. I'm always going to be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. Why? Because the tendency of the fleshly heart is to drift. It's to drift. It's to take it easy. It's to not do what we need to do. It's to, I'll take tomorrow off and I won't do what I should do in order to remain steadfast. Peter says, I'm always ready to remind you of these things. I know you know them. I know you know them. 
By the way, the word established there in verse 12 carries the whole idea of strengthening. I know that you already know them. I know that you have been strengthened in the truth. In other words, Peter wants us to gain and continue to have spiritual stability, to be established in our faith. Established is that idea of immovability. You're there, you're planted. In other words, false teachers are attractive to those who lack stability in truth. Those who lack stability in truth are the ones who become the victims of the wolves in sheep's clothing. Notice verse 17 of chapter 3. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on guard lest, being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own what? Steadfastness. You fall from your own stability. You begin to be weakened in your ability to stand fast. Be careful. So here's Peter speaking with authority. Speaking on the authority of Christ in order to protect and strengthen us in our faith. This is good news. This is good news for all of us. This is good news for the Christian. We can fail and yet still finish. Peter did. We can have epic failures, in fact, and still be restored. Peter did. He denied Christ three times in one night. And Jesus prayed for him, and he said, Peter, I'm praying for you, and after, after, go and encourage your brothers. Encourage your brothers. That's what Peter's doing. We're going to have regrets just like Peter. But we can know the blessing of being rescued by Christ. Think about your own Christian life. You think, man, I've been ambiguous in my commitment to Christ in the past. I've certainly wavered and flowed in my commitment, but that doesn't mean that you can't live for the day when Christ restores you. Live for the day when you begin to help and strengthen others in that way. You say, how do I know that's true? How do you know that's true? How do you know that actually happens? Because that's exactly who Peter says that he's writing to. Notice what he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. You see, the ours means we're in the same group. Those who have the same faith as ours. He's speaking of himself, the apostles, and every Christian who's gone before, specifically him and the apostles in this letter. And you and I are included. I'm writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours. You and I who know Jesus Christ by faith, we're in this group. We're part of that. Every person who possesses true faith in Christ ought to be putting this letter into practice. That's who Peter's writing to. Faith we have in Christ is the same faith that Peter had. It's the same faith that all the apostles had. That just tells us we're on equal ground. Peter was no higher spiritually than we are. Paul is no better of a Christian than we are. We're on equal standing with all of them. Not because of ourselves. Not because of ourselves. They're not better than we are in some human aspect, and that's how it's all figured out. No. Peter says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. You notice that? 
It isn't something that we did in and of ourselves. It only comes through Jesus Christ. Our faith could come no other way. None of us can attain to the required righteousness that God accepts on our own. None of us. It's only the righteousness of Christ that's acceptable. That's why Peter puts it here. This is, this is the doctrine of the imputation right there. The doctrine of justification right here. It comes as faith is ours by the righteousness of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It isn't something you conjured up. It isn't something you made happen. It's what God did. Each and every one of us has faults. Each and every one of us has failures. We're sinners through and through. It's only through the gospel of a foreign righteousness that we can be righteous before a holy God. Our ability to stand in any kind of way before a holy God on that day, fully rescued, fully renewed, depends on one thing, and it depends only on the righteousness of Christ. Nothing else. That's what Peter's saying. It was Christ alone that lived perfectly without fail. It was Christ alone that made the necessary atonement for sin that God required. And therefore, it's Christ alone who will bring us to our heavenly home blameless as we stand before God. It's only because of Christ. So, Christ sees, so God sees us through the righteousness of Christ in spite of the fact that we still sin and fail. We have been justified by God by righteousness of Christ. Point number one, undermined in that email because of that. Point number two, undermined because of the reality of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us. We have a precious faith. So Peter ends the beginning by saying this in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I love that. To you and I, to us as Christians, to those who have the same faith as His, He says you need steadfastness in your faith. You need to remain steadfast. Peter expresses his desire that we would experientially know God's grace and know His peace in multiplied ways. Steadfastness only begins by knowing Jesus Christ and continues through the grace and peace of Jesus Christ as God multiplies it to us through knowing Him. You see that? Unfathomable favor, confounding steadfastness throughout every part of life, grace and peace. That's what grace and peace are. Favor we do not deserve and a steadfastness that confounds all who see it on display. We don't deserve to be where we are. We don't deserve to be in the family of God. It is an undeserved grace and it is poured upon us day in and day out, every moment of every day that we take breath upon this very place. And we have this unfathomable peace as we stand steadfast regardless of what is happening. It only comes when you understand who God is, when you understand what your salvation is about, when you understand that it's not about you, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ, it's about the glory of God the Father, that you are an instrument of God's grace to be used by God, how God desires to use you so that you would bring Him maximum glory and that He would pour out His love to His Son through a redeemed people so that He would receive the glory. That may mean that we get arrested. That may mean that we go to jail. That may mean that we face all kinds of different punishments and difficulties in this life. To never be able to stand steadfast without knowing who your God is and knowing why your salvation is what it is and how God saved you. You'll compromise at any moment. 
That's why Paul could say to the Philippians, we have a peace that surpasses all understanding. That peace that surpasses understanding, that settledness, flows from an understanding of the matchless grace that we have been given. Notice, we have been giving it in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That's how it's been multiplied to you. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Listen, it isn't some high and mighty thing that we sit back in some mystical way and go, oh, pour on your grace and peace to me and I'll chant whatever words. No, you get that when you spend time with God, knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior. So what is it that must rule our walk this side of heaven? Knowledge. Knowledge. Truth about God, the truth about Jesus Christ, and all it entails in our salvation. Same word that's used at the beginning of this short letter is the same word that's used at the end. A knowledge of God in contrast to a knowledge born from ourselves. Chapter 2. So chapter 2 is... Those who follow after their own wisdom, their own knowledge. The false teachers. And it's this knowledge that is the basis of our steadfastness. In other words, it's the foundation. Which is why last Lord's Day we spoke out of Psalm 119 on foundational truth. The Word of God. What God says. We're not talking about intellectual knowledge. We're not talking about saying, hey, we're smart. No, this isn't some academic exercise. No, we're talking about experiential knowledge. Experiential knowledge, knowledge that begins through a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. It's the John 17, 3 kind of knowledge, the eternal life, which is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. I read this morning from Matthew 26 for a reason. Because Matthew 26 was a time in the life of Peter when he fell miserably. Miserably. But Christ sustained him. Commanded him later to strengthen others. And here we are, 2,000 plus years later, and Peter is being used by God to strengthen us. Peter took the words of Jesus Christ on that fateful night in his heart. He embraced that. And he's saying the same thing to us. Chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. We have much to learn, don't we? Peter's going to help us with that endeavor. He's going to help us learn much. And it all revolves around Jesus Christ, not denying Jesus Christ. I was thinking about this this morning in John chapter 15. The Pharisees that were continually challenging Jesus Christ, as you know from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, as we study through the Gospel of John, they were challenging Him in every way, trying to discredit Him in every way. And of course, we understand it all revolves around Jesus Christ. Everything revolves around Jesus Christ. He is the central reality of all faith, all life, all godliness. In other words, if you reject Jesus Christ, there's only one thing left. Damnation. There is no middle ground. There is no in-between. It is Jesus Christ or it is nothing. And the Pharisees were always trying to treat Him terribly. Always trying to unearth Him. Always trying to expose Him to be a liar. And Jesus was always telling His disciples about these things. In chapter 15 of John, in verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake or because of me. Why? Because they do not know the one who sent me. You see, Jesus is speaking to them about the very reality that Peter is saying is the steadfast reality of our life. It is that relationship with Jesus Christ. To know Jesus Christ is to know God. You don't know me, you don't know the one who sent me. Even though you might claim you know God, even though you might talk about a thing called God, even though you might claim to have relationship and know the truth, you don't know the truth unless you know Jesus Christ by faith. Notice what he says. If I had not come, John chapter 15, 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, he's speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, if I hadn't come and spoken to them, They would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. You know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, they claim to know God. They claim to have a relationship with God. And here is God in the midst. Here is God in the flesh. Here I am. There is no more clear gospel than me standing right in front of them. And they are rejecting me. They have rejected the obvious. If I hadn't come, oh, they might be able to make an excuse. An excuse will not work, but they might be able to make it. But here I am. They've claimed to know God, and yet they've rejected me. They claim to have knowledge, and yet they have no knowledge at all. Why? Because he who hates me hates my father. Inseparable. You cannot have a relationship with God without Jesus Christ. You can claim all the religious practice you want. You can do all the things that you think might make you a better person in the world and thereby stack up your pile of righteous deeds so you can stand before God one day and say, but look at how much good I did. All of that is filthy rags without Jesus Christ. You know not God. Notice what Jesus says in John 15. If I had done among them the works which no one else did, or if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, then they'd have some kind of excuse. They could say, listen, it's not our fault. But now they have both seen and hated me, and they hate my father as well. They claim to be righteous. They're the most in town, the most spiritual people around, and everybody compares their life to them, and yet they want nothing to do with me. Guess what? They don't know God at all. And why? Why is all this like this? In order that my word might be fulfilled that was written. In order that what I said through the prophets years ago be shown to be exactly what I said would happen. They hated me without cause. They had no reason to hate me. No more clearer picture of who God is than Jesus Christ, and yet they hated me. They loved their own mind. What Jesus said to the disciples, listen, when the helper comes, you're going you're gonna to go from here and I'll send you from the Father. He's coming, the, the Spirit's coming, being sent from the Father, and He will bear witness of me and you will bear witness also. Who do we proclaim? We proclaim Christ. We preach Christ crucified. We preach salvation in nowhere else. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. The name Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. 
you have no relationship with God unless it comes through Jesus Christ. And so Peter says, listen, make certain, make certain, make certain that that calling and choosing is you because in that you'll never stumble. For in this way, he says in verse 11 of chapter 1, this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Listen, you can stand on that as if you stand on the ground itself. It is that solid. Knowing Jesus Christ is the securest place we could ever be. This is where we're going. It's where Peter's taking us to help our faith not fail. Exciting times. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Lord, we certainly thank you for the life of Peter. We thank you that while we may fall, while we may fail, you are steadfast that you have given us all we need for life in godliness and that through the knowledge of you we can remain steadfast as we live here and now thank you for the riches of our salvation thank you that we have a precious faith We have a faith just like all of those true believers that have gone on before us. So cause us by your grace to remain steadfast in you. Thank you. Thank you for the peace that surpasses all understanding as we rest in Christ our Savior. So use us, Lord, for your glory as we obey you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.